Hey everybody, RJ here. While Ray and I do maintain that this podcast is family-friendly, this episode does contain topics that may not be suitable for younger listeners and or may be sensitive to some other listeners. The music discussed in this episode comes from a time with different views on some of these subjects. These may include things such as racism and other offensive stereotyping, and behavior that may be considered inappropriate by today's standards. Therefore, listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Howdy guys, welcome to the Cedar Country Podcast. I'm Ray. And I am RJ. Ray, what have you got in store for me today? It's not what I have in store for you, it's what you have in store for oh, the rest right. of us. Oh, that's right. That's right. Because we're going to be continuing to uh, walk down. I almost made a reference to a Green Day song. So instead, I'll, uh, um, we're going to go on the road again. There we go. Wrong genre. But uh, that's the right genre. No, so yeah, that's what I did. We'll go. Switch it to Willie we'll Nelson. All right, we're going to go on the road again <laughs> with this uh, down the path of the history of country music and its roots. We're still way back in its roots. So last time we left off, honestly, I don't remember exactly where we left off, and I was too busy slash lazy to go back and figure out exactly. So I do, tisk, tisk. I do apologize in advance if we've already covered a few of these here at the beginning, but I know for sure we haven't covered all of them. For sure we... We were definitely in the 1700s. I knew I, I'm starting us uh, at the first song uh, that I found that is that I think is can be traced to country music in some way or countries that can be traced to it. You know, the I guess technically the first song I'll, I'll get to the why the technicality, but uh, the first song post uh, Revolutionary War because I believe that's where we ended. I thought was the Revolutionary I, War. I would say yeah, that's, so that's we were definitely fun. somewhere around there. So that's gonna be. The second song, but the first song as far as the actual timeline. Uh, Before we continue on, I do want to reiterate that this episode, uh, some of the content that we're going to be talking about in this episode is definitely more mature. So, again, we're going to safely put a a listener discretion advice. Yeah, that's, I mean, so we, we talk about these things with the intention of educating learning about history and so obviously we i i know i don't condone and i'm sure ray won't condone what i talk about coming up here quite a ways actually down this list yeah dude racism is bad oh it's actually not racism not racism no um i think that i think i might have gotten to either i did or i got really close there i think there is gonna be a little bit talk about uh stuff related to uh uh racial stereotypes but the the main one that i remember getting to is actually not about that so we'll get to that but yes as ray said uh just <laughs> listener discretion is advised uh as i reiterate from earlier in the intro so i guess let's just jump into it so when we last left off we were in like i said we were at the tail end of the revolutionary war however during my research for this part uh i did find a song that i forgot to mention that is actually connected to Another song that I'm going to be talking about further down the list today that I would like to go back and mention. The song is called Dargison. It was written either in 1609 or earlier uh, by an unknown author. Uh, It is an air and country dance tune. Uh, Country not referring to country like our podcast does, but the actual like countryside of uh, usually talk about England. So a country dance is kind of a precursor to like a barn dance i guess it's more of a it's less formal than say your uh waltzes but it's i think it's still more formal than like a barn dances like square dancing it's popular tunes of the day that are not like operas set to uh set dance moves or whatever i'm not sure i don't i haven't looked into the history of country dances or or airs i'm not actually sure uh, I guess just for reference, because I know it's going to come up a little bit, the term air in music. I don't exactly remember what an air is, so let me see. So this is, comes from Wikipedia. Also, most of my research, once again, does come from Wikipedia. There are some other sources. This is all just, it's just cursory Google searches. 
essentially. So, um, so an air is a song-like vocal or instrumental composition. The term can also be applied to the interchangeable melodies of folk songs and ballads. It is a variant of the musical song form often referred to in opera, cantata, and oratorio as aria. So that's uh, that's what an air is, I guess. Okay, so Dargison. Uh, like I said, it's from 1609, so I'm actually jumping back a bit. It is actually, it's commonly played on the fiddle nowadays, uh, and it is possibly the predecessor to the song The Irish Washerwoman. Oh, okay. right. All right, now, back to where we actually were, which is the mid to late 1700s. This is post-American Revolution, uh, which culminated in independence from Britain in 1776. So the first song is A Hunting We Will Go. It was written by Thomas Arne in 1777. It's a folk song or nursery rhyme. Do you know what? Hmm? Have you ever heard it? Yeah. Okay. Have you? Yeah. Okay, good. So the earlier earlier versions of the song actually replace hunting with roving, uh, which I think had... I don't know exactly what roving is. I think it's fairly similar. It's... I don't... I, don't, I really don't know what... You don't, you don't know what roving means? Not offhand. It's like hiking. Okay. Makes sense. It's basically it's traveling yeah. of some sort. Okay, um, and then modern versions change the final line uh, from "and never let him go" to "and then we'll let him go." Uh, this is probably that's probably been in. I think modern is referring to probably as early as maybe the eighties, but as I mean, definitely for sure by probably the mid two thousands. But because I think you'll still hear both versions and never let him go, and then we'll let him go. Because I do remember hearing it both ways growing up. Uh, more at home, it was a never let him go. And, you know, at school, it's and then we'll let him go. Uh, so in like an elementary school music class. Uh, the next song is Amazing Grace. The lyrics were written by John Newton in 1779. It's a folk hymnal. It was written from a personal experience and to illustrate a sermon on New Year's Day, 1773. Uh, it is not known if any music accompanied the words at this sermon or if it was chanted or spoken instead instead like a like a gregorian chant kind of thing it was actually fairly unknown in england but it became popular in america during the second great awakening which was a protestant religious revival in the early 19th century in 1835 is when william walker set the lyrics to the tune then known as new britain uh, which is the tune most used with the song today. Do, 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 do. Uh, it is one of the most recognizable songs in the English-speaking world today and was repopularized during folk music revival of the 1960s. So I don't think anybody doesn't know what yeah, you said about it's, Amazing it's, Grace. Yeah. <laughs> and here's our first uh, Christmas song. So, The Twelve Days of Christmas. Uh, it was written by or before 1780 by an unknown author. It's an English Christmas carol. Uh, it was originally written, like many of these songs at the time, uh, without music as a chant or rhyme. Um, it's thought to be of French origin, actually. I did not know that. That that, that got me. I, I mean, it sounds... I guess I don't know a lot about English or French history. So I, You know what? I, I, I know this sounds pretentious, but I can see it. I can see it. Yeah, I can. Like, I can definitely see it, but I don't know if I would have been able to tell you that without having been told that. The tune that is most associated with the song, or I guess the lyrics, um, is derived from a 1909 arrangement of a traditional folk melody, sorry, medley, by English composer Frederick Austin, who introduced the familiar prolongation of the verse Five Golden Rings, or as it used to be, Five Gold Rings. So, you know, the lengthening of that. So, na, 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 na. Like really drawing that out. That was that was that was introduced by the composer Frederick Austin, who put the words to the tune most known with it today. Um, the meaning of the gifts in the song is ultimately unknown, although there are theories uh, that say it's signifying food or sport for each month of the year. But there's also versions of the song that have more than 12 things and more than 12 days. Like there's a version that has a verse for every day of the year. I'm pretty sure if I remember right from reading, I know. Ah, 
how long would that song? Well, it's. Be? I think this is. I think this is pre being you know a song and more just a poem kind of deal, as you know, a song without music is a poem. Yeah, so, I just holy. Yeah, like, no, could you imagine that being translated into a song? <laughs> I know. That would take you months to sing. You would. You could own. probably go from December first till Christmas Day to finally finish that song. Well, you could probably do it in a day, but still. <laughs> so this is a song we talked about before, but it is a new version, at least at the time, new version of John Barleycorn. This version was written by Robert Burns in 1782. That's a name that you're going to see come up quite a bit. It's a British folk song. This rewritten version, it makes the story of the song more mysterious. And it's the model that's used for most subsequent versions of the song. So other rewritten versions of the song are mostly based on this version and not the older version. So the next song is Coming Through the Rye or Coming Through the Rye. I'm not actually sure how to pronounce that. I mean, I imagine it's supposed to be through if we were to look at it with modern English, but it's T-H-R-O apostrophe. What's the origin? I'm not actually sure. I know the origin of the medley that they use, the melody, but that's not going to help. I guess melody, sorry, going back to the other one was supposed to be melody. I think I just wrote it along. So the words for coming through the rye were written by Robert Burns, again, in 1782. Uh, it's a folk song. I assume yeah, it's, it's British, it's, probably in origin. or Yeah, I, it's he, probably Irish. Or, because he's, that sounds or I, he might throw, be Irish, I yeah, think, throw, actually. Yeah, throw is definitely... Yeah. It is put to the med- melody of the Scottish minstrel Common Frey the Town, which is a variant on the tune that's also used for Auld Lang Syne. Um, the main difference between Auld Lang Syne and Coming Through the Rye being the tempo and the rhythm. So this one, the title really took me for a loop, and I, f- I actually had to like find out what it actually said. So, barring my bad pronunciation of the original title, what do you think... Actually, knowing you, you could probably get this. I had a horse. I had no mare. I had a horse. I had no mare. See, that's what I thought was I had no mare. And I thought, like, is M-A-I-R. Is it had a mare? I no, had a horse, I had, I had, a horse, I had no more. Oh. It's a Scottish folk song written by Robert Burns in 1780. Well, there you go. You're trying yeah. to make uh you trying but no, I didn't. To... I didn't know it was Scottish when I first found it, where I first saw the title. So I was like, is it... I had no mare. I don't know what, like, I didn't know what it was saying. I didn't understand the translation. I'm, I'm sorry, Scottish people. Yeah, I'm, you, you, I do you, apologize, you're, uh, too. You're, you're freaking, you're mush mouths. Okay. Uh, the next song is The Riggs o' Barley, again, written by Robert Burns uh, in 1783. It's a folk song. A lot of these are folk songs, obviously. Um, it is written to the tune of Corn Riggs, which I... Not sure he would know that tune either, unless you know the Riggs of Barley. Now we get to our first actual just poem. So there are several poems in here. Uh, some of them definitely have like music to go with them, but most of them are just straight up poems. A lot of them are nursery rhymes. This one's not though. Uh, Roses are red. This one, this one, I could actually recite the whole thing here and now. Roses are red, violets are blue. That one. Yep, that one. Well, I couldn't recite the whole thing. I don't know what the last two lines are offhand. Anyways, it's a folk poem written by an unknown author in 1784. Uh, It's obviously commonly used as a love poem. You often see it or parodies of it in February. It possibly originates as far back as a poem from 1590 by Sir Edmund Spencer from his epic The Fairy Queen. And it is actually the basis of the song Roses Are Red, My Love. Which is a country song. Well, I don't know. I actually can't say that it's predominantly or originally a country song, but I know it was. Uh, it was a song that was covered by uh, Jim Reeves in the '60s, the '50s, the 1950s or '60s. Uh, Roses are red, my love. Violets are blue. Sugar is sweet, my dear, but not as sweet as you. Basically, it's an old. Uh, I think it's called the Nashville Sound kind of style song. So. The next song is Black-Eyed Susan, or um, the full title is Sweet William's Farewell to Black-Eyed Susan. Uh, It's also known as All in the Downs. It was written by Robert Brodrip in 1785, and it is, again, a folk song. It sounds familiar, but I I couldn't put a tune to it if I could. I couldn't couldn't either. Most of these I can't. I just know that they're folk songs related to. Some of them I recognize (laughs) from hearing old country music recordings from, like, the 20s. 
or you know they're just common songs that you know today. Uh, the next song is "Song <laughs> Song of the Page" is the name of the song. Uh, this one was written by William Shields in 1785. Uh, it's a Scottish folk song. Which page? Number two forty. Uh, number seventeen eighty five. No, that's just the year. <laughs> ah, yes, the Battle of Sheremir. I feel like we've heard something like this before. We've had a couple of battle hymns so far. Yeah, there's definitely several of those. Um, so <clears throat> it was written again by Robert Burns. Like I said, his name's going to come up quite a bit. Uh, in seventeen eighty seven. It's a Scottish folk song. Oh, yes, that's why. I, I believe he's Scottish, by the way. Robert Burns. I'd have to relook that up, and I don't really want to take the time to do that right now. But if I remember offhand, he's Scottish. It was written to be sung to the Cameronian rant. And is actually about an actual battle, like some of these things are, or like some of the, lo- you know, locomotive wreck songs are later from, like, the 20s. And it's actually not about the Battle of Sheremir. It's about the Battle of Sheriff Mir, which it might just be a name that was the spelling was changed or it was changed over time through history. Names of places, especially in way back, were probably spelled differently. Or it might have been a creative liberty taken by whoever or by Robert when he writ- wrote it. He is definitely Scottish. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I, I believe he, he was Scottish. Yeah, he's... He was a big writer, Scottish folk songwriter in the seventeen late 1700s. So, like I said, it's about the Battle of Sheriff Muir, which occurred in Scotland in 1715, which ended inconclusively with no definite winner. And it, that's what led to the song being about two conflicting viewpoints of the battle. Uh, I believe it's from the viewpoint of two shepherds that are watching the battle. I'm not actually, I can't remember offhand. I didn't think to write that one. Uh, the next song is called Rosie Hannah, which is written by James Hook in 1787. Um, it was a popular song that's often played at the time is released with a piano or harp accompaniment. Now we get to making the connection with the Dargison. Now we're to the Irish washerwoman, uh, which was written in 1792 by an unknown author. It is a traditional jig played through the British Isles in North America it is considered Irish in origin, but it may have originated in England from the 17th century tune Dargison. And obviously, it was one of the most well-known Irish jigs in popular culture. And then we come to our first nursery rhyme, at least for... We might have had a couple before in the last part, but at least for this part, the first definite nursery rhyme. There was an old woman who lived in a shoe. Which, you know, when I said it, it kind of had a tune to it, and I think that's the common way people say it. So there is some musicality to some of these. And obviously, a lot of country music, especially older country music, is based on telling storytelling, which makes sense. Nursery rhymes are stories, which is why I felt it pertinent to mention these, um, in case anybody was wondering why I'm talking about nursery rhymes in our country music podcast. So it was written in 1794 or earlier by an unknown author. Uh, it's an English nursery rhyme or folk poem. The song may or I guess poem, may actually be even older, with versions of it containing a Shakespearean term in the last verse, which I can't remember offhand what that term was. Uh, That was just the information I got from Wikipedia on it. There are potential meanings that have been theorized that the, like what the poem is about. So one of the, one of the uh, ideas is the connection between shoes and fertility which the idea of casting a shoe after a bride leaving for a honeymoon or for the old custom of a woman who is trying to conceive, trying on the shoes of a woman who had just given birth. That's kind of weird, but okay. Yeah, I mean, it's old, you know, customs or uh, not really customs, but uh, wives, no, at least wives tales. It's, you know, <laughs> um, and then there's there's the ideas of possibly the old woman referring to a historical figure. Uh, some theories as to who it may be include Queen Caroline or Carolyn. I'm not sure actually I pronounced that who had eight children or Elizabeth Vergus of Boston, who had six children and 10 stepchildren. What else are you going to do back in those days? I, 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 I guess. Yeah. If it was that sort of period where, hey, we're going to pop out a whole bunch of kids because if we lose one, we'll have a backup. 
I mean, that's a pretty dark way of looking at it, but I guess. Because remember, this is this is a song, this is a poem written in 1794, and it's talking about historical figures. I mean, at the time, maybe that actually. So it might have been about somebody that lived around this time, or maybe historical compared to then. I don't know. Because I don't know also when these people that they're referring to lived. The last historical figure that they that is theorized, at least that I found, of who the old woman is, is actually Queen Carolyn's husband, King George II. Because it was considered that Carolyn was the real power behind the throne at the time. And obviously, so in this case, children refers to the members of parliament. Uh, the whip refers to the member in charge of dispensing political discipline in parliament. Which, I mean, whip is just a general term used in different governments for similar things. And then the bed being the House of Commons. So that's like the big theory behind that nursery rhyme. So here's an Irish tune, or a folk song, uh, but I believe it's, it's, it's definitely, I've heard Celtic versions of it. Actually, I'll talk about that here in a second. The Black Velvet Band. Is that one that you're familiar with? No? No. Arise, they shine like the diamonds. You'd think she was queen of the land, and her hair hung over her shoulder, tied up with a black velvet band. All right. Oh. Well, it was written in 1796 by an unknown author. Um, this is why it's un I'm unsure of its origin, because it says, uh, the folk song is collected from singers of Ireland, Australia, England, Canada, and the U.S. Um, but I most often hear it in Celtic music, so, like, <laughs> which is my next little fact, which is, it's a commonly recorded song by Celtic bands, um, most notably the Dubliners. So the song is about, and I'm bringing this up because I actually, I didn't understand part of it, because uh, one of the references that it makes I didn't really understand till now when I was researching this. So the song is about a young man who is tricked and sentenced to be transported to Australia, um, which was a common punishment in the British Empire in the 19th century, which I did not know. I mean, I did know that Australia was kind of like the prison continent. Yeah, for it's Britain. just a big jail. Yeah, I, like I'm, I'm familiar that that was the case back then, but I didn't realize that that was... Because the song, so the song says, um, refers to it as Van, if I'm pronouncing this right, Van Diemen's Land, uh, which was the original name for Tasmania, Australia. So that's why I didn't make the connection that they talk about sending him to Australia. Uh, and <laughs> now we get to another nursery rhyme with quite a bit of information. Humpty Dumpty. I don't know if I know this one. Oh man, Ray, you're, you're living under a rock or maybe under a wall. Well, I, um... If I'm uh, atop that wall, I hope I don't have a. I hope I don't fall off it. Yeah. So it was written in 1797 by an unknown author. It's a it's a riddle, <coughs> or a nursery rhyme. So the melody that is associated with the rhyme, because there is this one does for sure have music that's associated with it, um, was composed by James William Eliot in 1870. And also, I found out that there is a very, very slight variation of the tune as it's known in England compared to how it's known here in the U.S. And I don't remember, I listened to a, a version of a of a British man singing it, and there was it was like one or two notes uh, that was different than how we know it here in the U.S. So William Carey Richards wrote that Humpty Dumpty was, quote, the Dutch or something else for an egg. So, like, uh, the Dutch word for an egg or something similar to that, I assume, is what it means by that. And actually, the portrayal of Humpty Dumpty as an egg, because that is how it's most commonly, he is most commonly portrayed nowadays in things such as, you know, like the Puss in Boots movie from mm -hmm. several years ago. So that, that portrayal either it originated or at least became popularized by Lewis Carroll's Alice through the looking glass where the character is written specifically stated that he is a man. He, he is egg shaped in the 17th century. Humpty Dumpty referred to a drink of brandy boiled with ale. Yeah. I don't know. how That sounds, I don't know. I, as somebody that doesn't drink a lot of, especially hard alcohol, I don't know how that sounds. Yeah. That sounds like it would kick your butt. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then in the 18th century, Humpty Dumpty became uh, slang, referring to a short or clumsy person. So this is where it, the fact that, that it's called a riddle comes in. So meaning that the answer to the riddle at the time is that a person is not irreparably damaged, whereas an egg would be. 
is the answer to the riddle. There is a theory that Humpty Dumpty is about King Richard III. And then to tie it to more modern country music with a little fun fact, the nursery rhyme was referenced with altered lyrics, obviously, in Dolly Parton's 1980 song, Starting Over Again, which was actually written by Donna Summer. This is RJ, Ash, Ray, Brandon, Harrison, and Bronson. We host a Dungeons & Dragons podcast called Realms & Nerds. Some highlights of our show include wreaking havoc in every town we visit, blowing up hot tubs, killing off fan-favorite characters, high necromancers, inappropriate wedding etiquette, and every now and then, actually good storytelling. Join us in the realms of Pridea for fun fantasy adventures. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or just about wherever you get podcasts. Alright, another nursery rhyme. Rub-a-dub-dub. This is where the advisory is kicking in for this particular one, I remember. So, Rub-A-Dub-Dub, uh, a popular children's nursery rhyme, written in 1798 by an unknown author. Uh, it was originally titled, written versions of it, Dub-A-Dub-Dub, dating back to the 1300s. And here we go. So, the rhyme's meaning refers to men of respectable positions being called out for looking at, quote, three maids in a tub, which was a fairground attraction similar to a peep show. Uh, this has led to rub-a-dub-dub being used as a way to refer to gossip or innuendo without mentioning details. And then, obviously, more recent versions of this rhyme remove the reference to the three maids altogether. Why aren't we using that again? Why? Why? I'm 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 bringing that back. You're I'm bringing bring, that back. You're going to bring rub-a-dub-dub back for uh, scandalous stuff. All right. Here's <laughs> the one. Here's the one I know that you know, or if you don't know, I'll be sad and surprised. It's called Drunken Sailor, or the full title, What Shall We Do With the Drunken Sailor? Oh, I, as a man who likes a good she, a sea shanty, <laughs> a, good, I, uh, a good sea shanty, as a man who likes a good, as a man who likes a good sea shanty, I gotta say that, uh, yeah, I, I do know this So one. we are now in the 1800s. This song was written in 1800 or earlier, as many of these don't have definite dates, by an unknown author. Uh, as you've clearly mentioned, this is a sea shanty. It was used to accompany tasks aboard a sailing ship, particularly when the task required a brisk pace. But the tune kind of died out, if I remember. I didn't write this down, which I don't know why I didn't write these things down. So this is just off my memory, so apologies if I'm a little wrong here. But the tune kind of died out when uh, there were changes to ship designs. And there was, I think it was smaller crews because there were less things to have to do on the boat but it was revived among non-sailors in the 20th century becoming one of the best known shanties in popular culture and it shares its tune with a traditional irish folk tune oro sedu beata abhale i apologize i most definitely butcher that yeah, really bad i have a feeling you did <laughs> i don't know irish as much as i really wish i did what does it say let me show let me see all right. Let me see. <clears throat> All right. Or C. No, that's not Irish, dude. That's Gaelic. Yeah, I don't know Gaelic. I do know the translation, so we do have an English translation, okay. so we can stop stumbling around in Gaelic. Uh, so the translation is Oro, welcome home. Uh, Oro not really being translated, but Oro is a cheer. Uh, so that's it's basically kind of Yahoo, huzzah, huzzah welcome home. Uh, it was often sung by volunteers during the Easter Rising, which was an Irish rebellion in 1916 uh, that happened around Easter time. So next is Sans Day Carol, or Saint Day Carol, so or another Christmas tune. It was written between 1801 and 1850 by an unknown author. It's a Cornish Christmas carol, and it is the basis of the uh, more popular nowadays Although I would say the song isn't particularly popular nowadays, but the Carol, the Holly, and the Ivy. Uh, primarily because there is a line that says something about Holly and the Ivy, which 
uh little little tie-in throwaway reference holly ivy was the name of my character for your uh winter time holiday uh one-off campaign special for our D podcast that we're both part of which i definitely based off of as a reference to the song the holly and the ivy so if anybody wants to check that out you just look for realms and nerds so anyways good tie-in good, good tie-in good, tie good shameless plug so uh, the next song is a, is called Across the Wide Missouri, or more commonly known as O Shenandoah, or just Shenandoah. So this was also written between 1801 and 1850 by an unknown author. Do you know this song? Of course. Of course. I actually sang it for, back in, back in my college days, so somebody was still in college, back at the college I used to go to uh, when I was a vocal performance major. There was a performance class where most of the class was a one-on-one -on -one with an instructor. So for the performance class, you performed either once or twice a semester in front of everybody else who was having one-on-one -on -one instructors um, and got critiqued by all the one-on-one -on -one instructors. And the song I sang was Shenandoah. So, and I actually still have the accompaniment thing that uh, Dr. Boss played, which is really, it's a beautiful arrangement of that accompaniment. So yes, yeah, I definitely know Shenandoah. We sang it for high school choir one year. Oh, Shenandoah, which uh, the Shenandoah is obviously referenced to tie it into more modern country music. Again, it is referenced in John Denver's song, Take Me Home Country Roads. Uh, but anyways, back to Shenandoah, Oh, Shenandoah itself. It was written between 1801 and 1850 by an unknown author. Uh, it's an American folk song. This is, I think, our first American folk song, like truly, originally, 100% American. 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 <laughs> Although, here we go. Now to contradict what I literally just said. So it originated with American and Canadian fur traders traveling down the Missouri in canoes. Yeah, but... But, but, but they were traveling down the Missouri, so it was yeah, in America. Yeah, but who cares about Canada, man? Listen, Canada's great. Don't diss on Canada. They're our neighbor to the north. Come on, man. All right, so many of these traders were Pitty lonely Patty. and befriended Native Americans and on occasion would marry them. Um, so this song may have been written about a sailor who wishes to marry the daughter of, oh, and I do apologize, I'm probably going to butcher this Native American tribe name, uh, Oneida? It's O-N-E-I-D-A. You're good. So I believe it. I just I just won. It's Oneida. Know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, of Oneida chief, Shkenandoa. Uh, Shkenandoa. It's, it's a different spelling. So S-K-E-N-A-N-D-O-A. -E whose name is the basis of the song, because the name is his name has also been written as Shenandoah. Yeah, it's just an Americanized version. It's an English. It's mm. an Englishized. Yeah, actually, he uh, um, when he when when he when the chief converted to Christianity, I'm pretty sure that's probably how he wrote his wrote his name, and he because he used that as his last name and adopted the first name John, so he became John Shenandoah. So that was just a fun tidbit too. The Wayfaring Stranger, or I Am a Poor Wayfaring Stranger, uh, which is also written between 1801 and 1850 by an unknown author. Uh, it's an American gospel folk song. It actually is also known in the Western music circuits. Western, not referring to the Western Hemisphere, but the American West, obviously. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually it's ranked on the top 100 Westerns of all time. I don't know what the what its ranking is on there. I just know that it made the top 100. Tying it into modern country music, it became one of Burl Ives' signature songs and was also notably recorded by Emmy Lou Harris, as well as a collaboration between electronic artists Pretty Lights and country and bluegrass artists Leanne Rimes and Ralph Stanley. So it's a it's still it's still pretty well known today, especially in Western music circuits. So the next song, Joshua Fit the Battle of Jericho, or Joshua Fought the Battle of Jericho. Uh, so this one was also written between 1801 and 1850 by an unknown author. It's an African-American spiritual. Uh, it's believed to have been composed by slaves, hence its origin. Obviously, the song refers to the biblical story of the Battle of Jericho, where Joshua led the Israelites against Canaan. Uh, this is from, in the Bible, Joshua chapter 6, verses 15 through 21. But it is likely also an allusion to the eventual escape from slavery, such as the line, and the walls came a-tumbling down. And then, to connect it to more recent country music, it has notably been recorded by Elvis Presley. Here we go, another one that basically everybody and their mother knows. 
Turkey in the Straw. Um, I do not know this song. All right, now this time I can't tell if you're pulling my leg or not. No, I really, I really don't know this song. Turkey in the Straw, ha ha ha, Turkey in the Hay, Hay Hay, what? No. All right. (laughs) Well, all right, that's fine, Ray. You can, you can, it's, it's a popular tune, it's a... It was written between 1801 and 1900 by an unknown author, so now we have a wider range gap of when it could have been written. Somewhere in that um, century. Somewhere in that century. Somewhere in that ballpark. It is an American folk song. Uh, The first part may have been derived from the ballad My Grandmother Lived on Yonder Little Green, which itself is a derivative of the Irish ballad The Old Rose Tree. It's more commonly known now as a fiddle tune, which is popularized in the 1820s and 1830s in minstrel shows. Uh, this is again where we're getting into uh, some. This is educational and discretion is advised. It's a fiddle tune popularized in the 1820s and 1830s in minstrel shows, which, if you don't know what a minstrel show is, it is a precursor to vaudeville and variety shows, but relied heavily on blackface performance. It was notably popularized in minstrel shows by performers George Washington Dixon and Bob Farrell, who were blackface performers. The tune was also used for the song Zip Coon, which is another minstrel show tune. And that song particularly has been heavily associated with negative African-American stereotypes. Back to the original version, Turkey in the Straw, or at least one we're talking about now. It is known to have been Billy the Kid's favorite song. And it was among the songs played by the band on the RMS Titanic during its sinking. Oh, okay. (laughs) The uh, if you've ever seen the uh, '90s cartoon show Animaniacs, the tune is the basis for the song Wacko's America. Turkey in the star, turkey in the star, ha ha ha, turkey in the I know the tune. I do know the tune. Like I said, it's more popularly known as a fiddle tune now. The lyrics aren't as well known. As far as country acts, it has notably been recorded uh, back in the 20s, I believe, the 1920s by Gid Tanner and his Skillet Liquors. However, in popular culture, Turkey in the Straw has probably most famously been used as one of the primary tunes for the first Mickey Mouse sound cartoon, Steamboat Willie. Uh, in fact, it was the song used in the big uh, musical performance scene where they're playing music on the barnyard animals on the ship, if you've ever seen that short. Of course I have. So the next song is Pretty Polly. It's also known as the Gosport Tragedy or the Cruel Ship's Carpenter. Uh, this one was also written sometime in the 19th century. I'm just, I'm just giving years since generally I've been referring to things by years. So that's why it's got such a wide range, because all it's known is that it was written in the 19th century. So written between 1801 and 1900 by an unknown author, Pretty Polly is a folk song popular in the British Isles, Canada, and the Appalachian region of the U.S. Uh, it's a murder ballad. Uh, it's about a girl who was lured to the forest and is killed and buried in a shallow grave. Sorry to get dark Okay, there, okay, we're going that route. But it's commonly used as a fiddle tune. So, once again, much like Turkey in the Straw, the tune is more recognizable than the lyrics themselves. Do you know the tune? or I do not happen to know the tune for that one. Alright, well, that's something we'll have to look up after then. Yep. Uh, which is a good time to remind you, listeners, if you would like to hear the songs that we talk about in our episodes, I'm trying my best to make sure that I curate a uh, playlist on YouTube of the songs that we talk about on the show. Uh, so, if you go to our youtube channel you can find obviously the episodes of our podcast as well as playlists for each episode of the songs that we talk about or artists a song by the artist if we talk about an artist but not necessarily a specific song anyways back to uh where we're at here the next song is called jesse james which is also written in the 19th century between 1801 and 1900 by an unknown author It's an American folk song and is a biographical song written about the outlaw of the same name, Jesse James, albeit referring to him as an American version of Robin Hood, a claim to which no evidence supports. It has also been voted one of the top 100 Western songs of all time. This song has widely been recorded by many notable artists, especially in the country music and Western music scene, including 
The Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Johnny Cash, Vernon Dalhart, Woody Guthrie, and Sons of the Pioneers. Uh, then we have another nursery rhyme. Mary, Mary Had a Little Lamb. So this one was written between 1801 and 1900 by Sarah Josepha Hale. I apologize, I probably botched her name. And John Rollstone. It's an American nursery rhyme. And it actually may have been inspired by actual events in Massachusetts uh, revolving around a girl named Mary Sawyer, who later named Mary Taylor. I assume that's her name after she got married, which I guess is a girl that brought her pet sheep that she loved to school because her brother suggested that she do so, if I remember right. So the school mentioned in the rhyme may be the Redstone School that was in Massachusetts. It's still there. It was moved from its original location, but it is still in Massachusetts. It was actually the first recorded verse by Thomas Edison in 1877. So one of the earliest known On his audio- phonograph, yeah. Uh, uh, oh, not the phonograph. I believe that would have been on one of his wax cylinders. Because... The recording was retrieved by 3D imaging equipment in 2012, meaning until it was retrieved uh, after the technology from his invention kind of went out of style or, I mean, I guess that probably wasn't mass produced because it was a precursor to his gramophone, right? Yeah. Yeah. When you went to Greenfield Village during like seventh grade, did you hear that? I know they had a display in his... I don't remember. I remember the trip, but I don't remember that per- any particular part super well have you ever heard like the recording of it that he had I, he had he actually had two recordings i know of mary had a little lamb the uh i mean back when we you were in seventh grade it was before the this one ver this version the first version would have been retrieved and actually able to be listened to by modern audiences i guess so you probably heard the yeah. the later version he recorded it it's rough it is yeah it's, it's really rough it's and it's and it's so, you know, you look at these, you look at the stuff, and you would never have assumed that anything could be put on this that could be later recorded. Yeah, I've definitely, so cool. I've seen wax cylinders. It's so cool. It's crazy. There, a lot of people don't know, even in my music classes at college, uh, especially my music technology class, we didn't talk about wax cylinders hardly at all. Uh, we just basically started with phonographs and went from there. Uh, and then another nursery rhyme, Little Bo Peep, written in 1805 by an unknown author. It's a nursery rhyme, and it may have originated as a children's game in the 16th century. The next nursery rhyme, because now we're kind of, I think we're going to be on a little bit of a nursery rhyme kind of dive here for a little bit. Uh, one, two, buckle my shoe, uh, which is written in 1805 by an unknown author, it is a nursery rhyme. Uh, it was used as a counting game for, and obviously still is for young children. Next one is Old Mother Hubbard, which is also written in 1805 by an unknown author. Nursery Rhyme. It's one of the most popular publications of the 19th century. Uh, it is thought to be a political satire or parody, but it is unknown of what or who. Uh, the last one of this kind of trend of nursery rhymes here, Little Miss Muffet, which was written in 1805 again. By an unknown author, it's a nursery rhyme. It became one of the most printed nursery rhymes of the mid-20th century. Uh, and it may be about Dr. Thomas Muffet's stepdaughter, Patience, or less likely, about Mary, Queen of Scots. So here's a tune. I actually do, I can't, I don't know, like I couldn't hum the tune for you, but I recognize the name. Uh, but it's called Arkansas Traveler. Uh, it's a tune written between 1806 and 1874 by Colonel Sanford C. Sandy Faulkner. Uh, It's a folk song, obviously. It's a common fiddle tune. Uh, It was the state song for Arkansas from 1949 until 1963, and now has been the state historical song since 1987. Uh, The official lyrics were written by the committee that presented it as the state song in 1949, and it was a popular song in vaudeville shows, particularly in sketches revolving around a person from the city running into a, quote, fiddle-playing country bumpkin type. And similarly, it was used in Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies cartoons, particularly when country bumpkin type characters are introduced on screen. So next time you watch a Looney Tunes cartoon and some redneck cartoon character shows up in the short, uh, listen for Arkansas Traveler playing in the music. I bet you I have heard it. I don't. I can't even think of the tune. I mean, I know. I know I've heard it because I've. I, I like listening to like a wide range of country music. So I've listened to old country music, and that was one of the popular songs, uh, as we'll talk about when we get to that. 
to the 1920s. Uh, so believe me, if all those endearing young charms is the next tune written in 1808 by Thomas Moore and John Andrew Stevenson, an Irish air, an Irish folk song. I guess an air didn't come up as much as I thought, but I'm still good to know what an air is. It was possibly written to reassure Moore's young wife when she was stricken with smallpox and became afraid she would lose her looks due to the scarring. And the tune is an Irish air from 1775, and it's the same tune used for Fair Harvard, which is the alma mater of Harvard University. The next song, which is again another nursery rhyme, is Peter Piper, which is written in 1813 by an unknown author. It's a nursery rhyme. Uh, It's known for its alliteration and tongue-twisting words. Uh, And it was possibly written about 18th century French horticulturist Pierre Poivre. Which I know I said that right because I wrote down the pronunciation for it. So, you know, the Peter Piper picked a pack of pickled peppers. Mm -hmm. That one, yeah. Uh, And next we get to probably one of the most famous songs known around the world. Mostly because this is America. The Star Spangled Banner. It was written in... uh, Can you tell me, Ray? Because... Hopefully this is, hopefully you remember some of your uh, history. Do you know when or by who it was written? It was written in 1812. Okay. Do you know who wrote it? I actually think I could have maybe with enough time been able to figure out and remember who wrote it without having to look it up. Maybe not. I don't know. Who knows? Because I'm looking at the name right now, so obviously I know what it is. Is it John something? No. No. So you were close on the year, probably because I started saying it. Uh, It was written in 1814. Well, Uh, I know that it was written during the War of 1812. You are correct. It was, yes. Uh, It was written by Francis Scott Key. (gasps) Obviously, it's an American anthem, Mm. uh, and it became the, the United States of America's national anthem on March 3rd, 1931. Do you know what the national anthem before that was? Did we have one? Um, I think there were several unofficial anthems. So the words are actually from a poem that he had written called Defense of Fort McHenry. Uh, and it was set to the tune of To Anacreon in Heaven. Which I don't know if I'm saying that one word right because uh, it's, I'm guessing, a made-up word. I don't know. Um, I know its origin because... Uh, to Anacreon in Heaven is the official song of the 18th century British Gentlemen's Amateur Musicians Club, the Anacreontic Society. That was the tune. So the tune, do, 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 do. That was, that's the name of the tune. And obviously then the words from Francis Scott Key's poem, which is actually called Defense of Fort McHenry, were set to that. And that is the, na- that is the Star Spangled Banner. Obviously, as you mentioned, uh, the, the poem, the words were inspired by the sight of the U.S. flag at the time uh, after the victory of the Battle of Baltimore during the War of 1812. So there you go, War of 1812. You're definitely right there. The poem has four stanzas. However, only the first is commonly sung today. I, I'm sure most Mar- Americans don't know the second through fourth stanzas. I know I don't. The song is known as being a more difficult song to sing given its range of 19 semitones which is about one and a half octaves, Uh, which is why a lot of people have petitioned to have our national anthem changed from the Star Spangled Banner to something that is easier for more people to sing, such as America the Beautiful, I think is like the front runner of what we should change our national anthem to. So the next one is another nursery rhyme, Jack Be Nimble which is written in 1815 by an unknown author. It's a nursery rhyme. It was based on the act of jumping over a candlestick as an act of fortune-telling or as a sport uh, with the superstition that good luck would come if jumping over the candle did not extinguish the flame, which I did not know. Oft in the Stilly Night, which sounded to me when I first read that title like a Christmas song, but it's not. At least I don't think it is. Uh, it's written in 1817 by Thomas Moore. It is an Irish air. The next song is the Crimson Banner, also known as the 18th of December, or No Surrender, which is written in 1818 by William Blacker. It's a traditional Irish song, and it celebrates the closing of the gates of Derry on the approaching Jacobite Irish army on December 18th, 1688, and the consequent siege of Derry. 
And then to close out, we're going to look at another song known basically around the world. Still Nacht. Still Nacht? I, I, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that a little bit wrong. You familiar with that song, Ray? No, you've never heard of Silent Night? Oh. Yes. Oh. The original title of Silent Night is Still Nacht. Because like I said, it's an Austrian Christmas carol. I should know that because it's so... Uh, ugh. I should know that German ever, is so German is so close to is is really close to English. I should know that. Do you ever listen to uh, John Denver and the Muppets Christmas album? No. Okay. Because uh, they he talks about kind of the history of the song uh, before they start singing it for that track. <laughs> so that's how I actually knew about the title being Still Nacht. Um, it was written in 1818 by Joseph Moore and Franz. Haver Gruber, uh, and it was translated into English by John Freeman Young. As I mentioned, it's an Austrian Christmas carol. Uh, it was first performed on Christmas Eve 1818 in Oberndorf, Austria. Uh, it was written to be performed that night on guitar as a flood had damaged the church's organ. Uh, the English version was published by Young in 1859, uh, and this is the version most recorded and performed today. It is the most performed Christmas carol of all time, and Bing Crosby's recording is the third best-selling single of all time. The song has also been translated into 140 different languages. And I believe that was also the song that was uh, sung during World War One, right? On Christmas Eve, when they had the... Uh, or maybe it was World War... No, it was World War Two, right? No, World War World, I had World the War famous I? World War One had the famous Armistice. The yeah, Christmas Armistice. Uh, Christmas Armistice. And I believe that was one of the songs sung during that by both sides. Because I mean everybody like knows the song. That's about as far as I've got today. Not exactly sure what we'll talk about next time. Uh we'll figure that out. And I guess this is uh goodbye for now. And we'll talk to you later. And with this, we'll ride off uh, into the sunset. Yeah.